This episode, I'll be reading Jones v. Hendricks. And when I'm done reading this opinion, I will have read every single opinion, at least majority opinion, of the 2022 Supreme Court term. So if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to the opinions that you wanted to listen to because I hadn't read them yet, now is the time for you to go back and look for those titles. And now I give you the June 2023 opinion of the court in Jones v. Hendricks. Enjoy. Justice Thomas delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Justices Sotomayor and Kagan filed a dissenting opinion. Justice Jackson also filed a dissenting opinion. This case concerns the interplay between two statutes, 28 U.S.C. Section 2241 the General Habeas Corpus Statute, and Section 2255, which provides an alternative post-conviction remedy for federal prisoners. Since 1948, Congress has provided that a federal prisoner who collaterally attacks his sentence ordinarily must proceed by a motion in the sentencing court under Section 2255 rather than by a petition for a writ of habeas corpus under Section 2241. To that end, Section 2255E bars a federal prisoner from proceeding under Section 2241 unless the Section 2255 remedy by motion is inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of his detention. Separately, since the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, AEDPA, Second or successive Section 2255 motions are barred unless they rely on either newly discovered evidence or a new rule of constitutional law. A federal prisoner may not, therefore, file a second or successive Section 2255 motion based solely on a more favorable interpretation of statutory law adopted after his conviction became final and his initial Section 2255 motion was resolved. The question presented is whether that limitation on second or successive motions makes Section 2255 inadequate or ineffective, such that the prisoner may proceed with his statutory claim under Section 2241. We hold that it does not. Part 1. In 2000, the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Missouri convicted Petitioner Marcus D'Angelo Jones of two counts of unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 922G1 and one count of making false statements to acquire a firearm in violation of Section 922A6. The Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit affirmed his convictions and sentence of 327 months imprisonment. After losing his appeal, Jones filed a timely Section 2255 motion to vacate, set aside, or correct his sentence, 
which resulted in the vacator of one of his concurrent Section 922G sentences, but no other relief. Years later, in Rehife v. United States, 2019, this court held that a defendant's knowledge of the status that disqualifies him from owning a firearm is an element of a Section 922G conviction. In doing so, it abrogated the Eighth Circuit's contrary precedent, which the Western District of Missouri and the Eighth Circuit had applied in Jones's trial and direct appeal. After Rehife, Jones hoped to leverage its holding into a new collateral attack on his remaining Section 922G conviction. But Rehife's statutory holding satisfied neither of Section 2255H's gateway conditions for a second or successive Section 2255 motion. It was neither newly discovered evidence nor a new rule of constitutional law. Unable to file a new Section 2255 motion in his sentencing court, Jones instead looked to Section 2255E's saving clause, which provides that a federal prisoner may file a petition for a writ of habeas corpus under Section 2241 if, and only if, Section 2255's remedy by motion is inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of his detention. Invoking this clause, Jones petitioned the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Arkansas, the district where he was imprisoned, for a writ of habeas corpus under Section 2241. The District Court dismissed Jones's habeas petition for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed. The Eighth Circuit rejected Jones's argument that the saving clause permits recourse to Section 2241 to present a Section 2255H barred claim based on an intervening decision of statutory interpretation, as well as his argument that foreclosing relief on his rehife claim would violate the suspension clause. In doing so, the Eighth Circuit deepened a split among the courts of appeals about whether prisoners in Jones's circumstances may resort to Section 2241 via the Saving Clause. We granted certiorari. The Solicitor General then noticed her intent to defend the Eighth Circuit's judgment, but not its rationale. We appointed Morgan Ratner as amicus curiae to argue in support of the Eighth Circuit's reasoning. She has ably discharged her responsibilities. Part 2 Consistent with the Eighth Circuit's reasoning, we hold that Section 2255E's saving clause does not permit a prisoner asserting an intervening change in statutory interpretation to circumvent AEDPA's restrictions on second or successive Section 2255 motions by filing a Section 2241 petition. We begin by considering the role of the saving clause in Section 2255 prior to AEDPA's enactment. We then consider the impact of AEDPA on the statutory scheme. In relevant part, Section 2255 provides Clause A, 
a prisoner in custody under sentence of a court established by Act of Congress, claiming the right to be released upon the ground that the sentence was imposed in violation of the Constitution or laws of the United States, or that the court was without jurisdiction to impose such sentence, or that the sentence was in excess of the maximum authorized by law, or is otherwise subject to collateral attack, may move the court which imposed the sentence to vacate, set aside, or correct the sentence. Clause E. An application for a writ of habeas corpus in behalf of a prisoner who is authorized to apply for relief by motion pursuant to this section shall not be entertained if it appears that the applicant has failed to apply for relief by motion to the court which sentenced him or that such court has denied him relief unless it also appears that the remedy by motion is inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of his detention. In understanding this statutory text, a page of history is worth a volume of logic. Section 2255 is an outgrowth of the historic habeas corpus powers of the federal courts as applied to the special case of federal prisoners. The first Judiciary Act authorized the federal courts to grant writs of habeas corpus for the purpose of an inquiry into the cause of commitment, with a proviso that such writs could extend to prisoners in jail only where they were in custody under or by color of the authority of the United States, or were committed for trial before some court of the same, or were necessary to be brought into court to testify. In 1867, Congress expanded the federal court's habeas powers to cover all cases where any person may be restrained of his or her liberty in violation of the Constitution or of any treaty or law of the United States. For most of our nation's history, a federal prisoner claiming the right to be released in a collateral attack on his sentence would have relied on these acts and their successors. That changed with the 1948 recodification and reorganization of the Judiciary Code. In enacting the present Title 28 of the United States Code, Congress largely recodified the federal court's pre-existing habeas authority in Sections 2241 and 2243, which, respectively, confer the power to grant the writ and direct the issuing court to dispose of the matter as law and justice require. At the same time, however, Congress created Section 2255 as a separate remedial vehicle specifically designed for federal prisoners' collateral attacks on their sentences. The sole purpose of this innovation, as this court acknowledged a few years later, was to minimize the difficulties encountered in habeas corpus hearings by affording the same rights in another and more convenient form. Experience had shown that processing federal prisoners' collateral attacks on their sentences through habeas proceedings, and therefore through the judicial districts in which they were confined, resulted in serious administrative problems. Most significantly, a federal prisoner's district of confinement was often far removed from the records of the sentencing court 
and other sources of needed evidence. These difficulties were greatly aggravated by the concentration of federal prisoners in a handful of judicial districts, which forced those district courts to process an inordinate number of habeas corpus actions. Section 2255 solved these problems by rerouting federal prisoners' collateral attacks on their sentences to the courts that had sentenced them. To make this change of venue effective, Congress generally barred federal prisoners authorized to apply for relief by motion pursuant to Section 2255 from applying for a writ of habeas corpus under Section 2241. But in a provision that has come to be known as the Saving Clause, Congress preserved the habeas remedy in cases where the remedy by motion is inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of a prisoner's detention. Traditionally, courts have treated the saving clause as covering unusual circumstances in which it is impossible or impracticable for a prisoner to seek relief from the sentencing court. The clearest such circumstance is the sentencing court's dissolution. A motion in a court that no longer exists is obviously inadequate or ineffective for any purpose. The saving clause might also apply when it is not practicable for the prisoner to have his motion determined in the trial court because of his inability to be present at the hearing or for other reasons. In addition, the saving clause ensures that Section 2255E does not displace Section 2241 when a prisoner challenges the legality of his detention without attacking the validity of his sentence. To give a few examples, a prisoner might wish to argue that he is being detained in a place or manner not authorized by the sentence, that he has unlawfully been denied parole or good time credits, or that an administrative sanction affecting the conditions of his detention is illegal. The briefs before us debate whether these types of challenges depend on the saving clause or proceed under Section 2241 directly. It is difficult to imagine a case in which this logical distinction would make any practical difference. That said, were it not for the saving clause, a literal reading of Section 2255E might be thought to bar any application for a writ of habeas corpus in behalf of a federal prisoner, whether or not it challenged the sentence imposed. If nothing else, then, the saving clause guards against the danger that Section 2255E might be construed to bar manner of detention challenges, even though they are not within Section 2255's substantive scope. Section B. In 1996, Congress enacted AEDPA, which made significant reforms to the process of federal court post-conviction review for both state and federal prisoners. Most relevant here, AEDPA strictly limited second or successive Section 2255 motions to those that contain 1. Newly discovered evidence that, if proven and viewed in light of the evidence as a whole, 
would be sufficient to establish by clear and convincing evidence that no reasonable fact-finder would have found the movant guilty of the offense, or, two, a new rule of constitutional law made retroactive to cases on collateral review by the Supreme Court that was previously unavailable. Importantly, AEDPA left the text of Section 2255E unchanged, but AEDPA's new second or successive restrictions indirectly gave rise to a novel application of the saving clause. Mere months before AEDPA's enactment, this court decided Bailey v. United States, 1995. That case interpreted the offense of using a firearm during and in relation to any crime of violence or drug trafficking crime in violation of then-existing 18 U.S.C. section 924c1 more narrowly than many circuits' previous case law. Under this court's section 2255 precedent, Bailey's narrowing interpretation was grounds for a collateral attack by federal prisoners who had been convicted under the Courts of Appeal's broader interpretations. Many prisoners with Bailey claims, however, had already exhausted their first Section 2255 motion, and Bailey's statutory holding plainly did not satisfy either of Section 2255H's conditions for a second or successive motion. Several courts of appeals found a workaround for those prisoners in the saving clause. With minor differences in reasoning and wording, they held that Section 2255 was inadequate and ineffective under the saving clause, and that Section 2241 was therefore available when AEDPA's second or successive restrictions barred a prisoner from seeking relief based on a newly adopted narrowing interpretation of a criminal statute that circuit precedent had foreclosed at the time of the prisoner's trial, appeal, and first Section 2255 motion. This application of the saving clause took shape in In Re Dorsonville, 1997, Treastman v. United States, 1997, and In Re Davenport, 1998, and was later adopted by most of the other circuits. We now hold that the saving clause does not authorize such an end run around AEDPA. In Section 2255H, Congress enumerated two and only two conditions in which a second or successive Section 2255 motion may proceed. Because Section 2255 is the ordinary vehicle for a collateral attack on a federal sentence, the straightforward negative inference from Section 2255H is that a second or successive collateral attack on a federal sentence is not authorized unless one of those two conditions is satisfied. Even more directly, Section 2255H2's authorization of a successive collateral attack based on new rules of constitutional law implies that Congress did not authorize successive collateral attacks based on new rules of non-constitutional law. Had Congress wished to omit the word constitutional, it easily could have done so. 
the saving clause does not undermine this strong negative inference. Basic principles of statutory interpretation require that we construe the saving clause and Section 2255H in harmony, not set them at cross-purposes. That task is not difficult given the distinct concerns of the two provisions. Subsection H presumes, as part of its background, that federal prisoners' collateral attacks on their sentences are governed by Section 2255, and it proceeds to specify when a second or successive collateral attack is permitted. The saving clause has nothing to say about that question. Rather, like subsection E, generally it addresses the antecedent question of the relationship between Sections 2241 and 2255. After AEDPA, as before it, the saving clause preserves recourse to Section 2241 in cases where unusual circumstances make it impossible or impracticable to seek relief in the sentencing court, as well as for challenges to detention other than collateral attacks on a sentence. Because AEDPA did not alter the text of Section 2255E, there is little reason to think that it altered the pre-existing division of labor between Sections 2241 and 2255. AEDPA's new restrictions on Section 2255, therefore, are best understood as just that, restrictions on Section 2255 not as expansions of Section 2241's applicability. Any other reading would make AEDPA curiously self-defeating. It would mean that, by expressly excluding second or successive Section 2255 motions based on non-constitutional legal developments, Congress accomplished nothing in terms of actually limiting such claims. Instead, it would have merely rerouted them from one remedial vehicle and venue to another. Stranger still, Congress would have provided a superior remedy for the very non-constitutional claims it chose not to include in Section 2255H. After escaping Section 2255 through the Saving Clause, Non-constitutional claims would no longer be subject to AEDPA's other express procedural restrictions, the one-year limitations period, and the requirement that a prisoner obtain a certificate of appealability before appealing an adverse decision in the district court. We generally resist attributing to Congress an intention to render a statute so internally inconsistent. That resistance is particularly acute here, where allowing non-constitutional claims to proceed under Section 2241 would mean resurrecting the very problems Section 2255 was supposed to put to rest. Section 2255 owes its existence to Congress's pragmatic judgment that the sentencing court not the district court for the district of confinement, is the best venue for a federal prisoner's collateral attack on his sentence. Channeling a particular class of second or successive attacks back to Section 2241 would mean once again concentrating an inordinate number of habeas corpus actions in districts 
with large prison populations and requiring district courts to review each other's proceedings, often without access to the witnesses, the sources of evidence, or other local information that may be critical. The illogical results of applying such an interpretation argue strongly against the conclusion that Congress intended these results. Here, as often is the case, the best interpretation is the straightforward one. Section 2255H specifies the two limited conditions in which Congress has permitted federal prisoners to bring second or successive collateral attacks on their sentences. The inability of a prisoner with a statutory claim to satisfy those conditions does not mean that he can bring his claim in a habeas petition under the saving clause. It means that he cannot bring it at all. Congress has chosen finality over error correction in this case. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>